You know the phrase locus classicus, the classical place? It's a term uh, used for, in theology, for a particular text of the Bible that is more important than almost any other in the development or the demonstration of that particular doctrine. Um, you can think of 1 Corinthians 15 as a locus classicus for the doctrine of the resurrection, for example. Psalm 78, which from verses of which we just sang, I think is a locus classicus for the doctrine of the covenant child, not only, and of the Christian parent, not only the obligation to teach our children uh, the things of God, the great works that he has done, but the promise that that nurture will result in uh, their uh, coming to a mature and practiced faith themselves. Okay, when I wrote my article on Presbyterian thinking about the covenant child and covenant succession, that was the term I thought up as a way of describing this biblical principle that saving grace would run in the lines of generations from parents to children to children's children and so on. I began with a review of Schenck's argument about the replacement of Calvin's doctrine with a revivalist understanding of the Christian child and that child's experience of God's salvation. But I realized that what was needed first and foremost was not a history of the doctrine, but a presentation of the biblical data upon which that doctrine rests. The problem I faced was I could not find such a presentation anywhere in the English language. I could find, I could find some of it in Latin, I could find some of it in Dutch, but I couldn't find it in English. That in itself is some indication of the problem. The Dutch had those works and I relied on them, but um, I realized at the time I was setting out a summary of the biblical teaching regarding covenant children and salvation succeeding through the lines of generations that could not otherwise be found in uh, the English language. I found the biblical doctrine of the covenant child to consist in six affirmations. And I was able to show, I think, that every one of them is comprehensively demonstrated and illustrated in the Bible, on the one hand, and that these are the only affirmations that the Bible makes about the Christian child. Uh, as if there, is, there might be some other teaching that does not fit into this uh, paradigm or profile. The first affirmation was the simple one. Grace runs in the lines of generations. It's simply a biblical fact that it does. Um, it does in the Bible, it does in Christian history. It's one of the easiest things in the world uh, to demonstrate. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Boaz, Jesse, David, Solomon. Lois, Eunice, Timothy. Uh, in fact, most of the faithful kings of Judah had at least a believing mother, if not a believing mother and father. So do most of the heroes of faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11, if there is enough information concerning them for us to tell. It was fascinating to me 
as I researched the question, to find that through the first few centuries of Christian history after Pentecost, a time you remember of tremendous evangelistic advance, most every name from that patristic period that a well-read Christian would recognize was in fact the product of a believing home. You would expect everybody to have been a convert in those days, but most of them were not. They were covenant children who had been raised in pious homes. There are some exceptions. Justin, who became Justin Martyr, uh, became a Christian in large part through a conversation he happened to have with an old man on a beach when he was taking a walk. Um, Cyprian, the great bishop of North Africa, was a convert uh, as well. But Polycarp and Irenaeus and Origen and the Cappadocians and Chrysostom and Augustine, all of these had Christian parents or at least Christian mothers who made a great uh, work of raising their sons in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is, by the way, simply a brute fact of Christian history. Um, in virtually all times, all places, except that time and in that place when the Christian gospel is first arriving in a community. I don't know how many times, because I've spoken a great deal on this particular subject, I don't know how many times I've asked an audience, a congregation, how many of you have at least one believing parent? Go ahead, raise your hand. How many of you have at least one believing parent? All right. I was teaching at the African Bible University in Kampala some, a few years ago. I did the same uh, thing. I asked how many of you had a believing parent? Every single one of the missionary teacher hands went up and not one single student's hand went up. Every single one of those students was the first Christian in their home. But I went on to tell them they could not be the last. That uh, when they married, it was going to fall to them to raise their children in the nurture and admission of the Lord and that the church in Uganda would grow not only wonderfully, but principally by the addition of uh, children who were raised in uh, the faith. My grandfather was a Presbyterian evangelist. My father was a Presbyterian minister. I'm a Presbyterian minister. I have five children who, are all, who all confess Christ as their savior. My wife is the product of Christian generations as well. We are not a family of converts. But even converts are ordinarily the progenitors of a new Christian line of faith. That's simply a fact. It's like the doctrine of original sin. It's a doctrine with massive empirical verification. You don't have to prove the doctrine of original sin. You just have to take your two-year-old son on a cross-country trip. And <laughs> by, the end of the, by, the end, by the time you get to Chicago, you'll be a believer. What's true in my own case is true in virtually the case of every church in, uh, in the country. And it's also true, and this is what 
pleases me immensely and also confirms me in my conviction. It's true in families. In fact, I think it's almost just as true in families that would deny this doctrine if they were standing on their feet in debate. Think of the family of Billy Graham, for example, or the family of Charles Spurgeon before him. Um, that's the first affirmation. It is simply a fact of salvation history that grace runs in the lines of generations. And of course, what that allows for is geometric growth in the Christian church rather than arithmetic growth. And uh, that is how the church grows so dramatically um, in many places in many times. By the way, it's true of the great evangelists. You might suspect that evangelists would invariably be people who had conversion experiences themselves. But many of the most influential evangelists were the product of believing homes. It's true of the great missionaries. David Livingston, William Carey, John Payton, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They were all the product of believing families. It's true of the great theologians, Augustine, Francis Turretin, Charles Hodge, Benjamin Warfield, Herman Bavink, all of them the product of godly homes. That's the first. It is simply a fact that this is the way salvation happens in the world. The second is that this fact is actually provided for in the Bible. The Bible provides a comp comprehensive explanation of this fact. It's not a coincidence that so many Christians happen to be raised in believing homes. After all, we believe you must be born again. And a parent hasn't the power to give a new heart to his or her child. So how is it that it happens that so many Christians are the product of believing homes? It can't be simply the fact that if your parents were Republicans, you're likely to be two. If your parents were middle class, you're likely to be two, and, and so on. We need profound divine work to create a Christian. And still, it is so many Christians the product of believing homes. So the Bible lays tremendous effort, uh, emphasis on the fact that it's God's intention, it's God's purpose that his saving grace would run in the lines of generations. Genesis 17 is the first statement of this doctrine, I will be a God to you and to your children after you, but I'll bet you everyone sitting here uh, this evening would be surprised to find out how many times in one form or another that promise is repeated in the pages of the Bible. Literally hundreds of times. You hear something about children and something about salvation in the same, in the same breath. Um, God tells us in his word, in 1 John, in a different context to be sure, but he tells us that he who loves the Father will love his children as well. Now that principle applies to our relationships with one another. If we love God, we're going to love God's children um, in, in our church. Our, our love for one another is or flows out of our love for the one who is the father of all of us together. We're brothers and sisters in the same family. We owe one another that love. But the principle obviously applies in this way too. If God loves us as parents, he's going to love our children too, 
whom Richard Sibbs beautifully describes as simply a piece of ourselves wrapped up in another skin. We know that. We feel that. If God loves us, he needs to love. He must love our children because our children are our life. Again, this doctrine is comprehensively and repeatedly and emphatically taught in the Old Testament, but we see it just as clearly in the New. Peter can't finish his Pentecost sermon without saying the promises to you and to your children and to as many as the Lord our God shall call, as many as are afar off. And then in the rest of Acts, we see the far off being called, parents and children uh, together. There's your there's your argument for family solidarity in the salvation of God. Um, so there is a, um, I think it's an important thing to say, there is no new doctrine of the covenant child in the last 27 books of the Bible. It's the same thing you've gotten from the beginning hundreds of times over. The third affirmation was that is the biblical paradigm for children to grow up in the faith from their earliest years, their infancy. It's certainly remarkable to me that given the prevalence of the conversionist paradigm ascended in American Christianity and even in segments of American Reformed Christianity, that the Bible furnishes only one clear example of children raised in a godly home in which parents could be expected to have raised their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Only one example of such children becoming Christians only in their adulthood. Can you think of what that example is? The Lord's brethren. Brothers and sisters whom we are told in the Gospels did not believe in him during the days of his ministry, but are found with the disciples in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. But I think their role as witnesses of the resurrection, who better to say that's definitely the same <laughs> Jesus than the, than the fellows and the gals who grew up with him in their own home. That place that they occupy as witnesses of the resurrection have much more to do with their late coming faith than that this is somehow or another a paradigm the Bible is teaching us to expect uh, to see um, repeated in salvation history. The contrary paradigm is entirely absent in the Bible. It's absent in precept, it's absent it's absent in illustration. Where do you find, for example, a paradigm of covenant conversion, of adolescent conversion, illustrated in the Bible? If that's really what God expects to happen, if that's really what he intends to happen, why don't we see it happening in the Bible, and why don't we have any teaching to that effect anywhere in the pages of God's Word? The fourth affirmation or assertion is that the children of believers are members of the church. Again, this is not a difficult thing to demonstrate. That's the same thing as saying that they are Christians. That's the Bible's way of saying that they are Christians. We know this because they are numbered with the people of God in the Old Testament. 
They are expected to be present with the rest of the community when the covenant is renewed, commanded to be present indeed. <coughs> they are given the sign and seal of entry into the covenant community, same sign and seal that would be given to a convert who came into Israel from outside. Um, they are everywhere summoned to live as the people of God, even as they are growing up. So, for example, when the Apostle Paul divides the church up into its constituent parts so that he might address a word to each of those particular parts of the church, among those parts are parents and children. They, too, belong in that grouping of saints to whom the entire letter is, uh, is addressed. It's the lack of a robust ecclesiology that, to, that I think to a very large degree explains why this simple fact that our, Christ, that our children are Christians, that they belong to Christ's church, has not been appreciated better or more for its far-reaching implications. Everybody who belongs to this church is regarded as a Christian. Everybody who belongs to this church is regarded as an object of discipleship. Everybody who belongs to this church is regarded as under orders to live the Christian life, to live it in community. The practical effect of this teaching that our children are Christians, they are members of the body of Christ, is that uh, discipleship, not evangelism, is the paradigm of child raising in the home. And this is the sixth assertion. Everywhere in the Bible, our children are insiders to be discipled, never outsiders to be evangelized. They're not outside needing to be brought in. They are inside needing to be matured in faith and hope and love. Get that in Proverbs, you get it everywhere else, but we'll get to that in the next one. Um, it's certainly my testimony, as it was the testimony of my father. I suspect the testimony of my grandfather, though I didn't know him uh, personally. He died when I was just two. That I have no recollection, none, of stepping out of darkness into light. I don't and cannot, I don't have, I cannot remember a conversion experience in my own case. So far back as I can remember, I was part of the church and I was receiving instruction in the Christian life. I was being disciplined as a Christian who had obligations of love and obedience and uh, so on. So um, here we are children, members of the church. It troubles me, I think it might trouble you if you stopped and thought about this, that our practice of two-tier membership in the Presbyterian Church, we actually list our membership in two columns in the PCA. We have non-communicant members and we have communicant members. But it troubles me that that paradigm is completely absent in the Bible or from the Bible. It's invisible in the Bible. We're, we're people who pride ourselves on our biblicism. We think, this isn't true, but we think 
that we're the kind of Christian that does everything the Bible says and we believe everything the Bible teaches, unlike some of those Christians who carve out portions of the Bible they don't want to believe, like election and so on. We're the, we're the rock-steady Christians who believe everything and do everything. And here we've got an extraordinarily important part of our understanding of what it means to belong to the church of Jesus Christ that you cannot find anywhere in the Bible. That's odd to me. That's very odd to me that it doesn't trouble more people than it does. It takes time to make changes. I appreciate that. The fifth assertion is that parents and the church are responsible to provide the children of the church with nurture in the Christian faith. Genesis 18, you know, uh, the Bible teaches its doctrine and its ethics meristically. Uh, a merism, um, it comes from the Greek word meros, which means part. And the Bible's teaching, as you know, is found part here and part there. In Genesis 17, you simply have the promise, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. That's all that's said. Nothing about the instruments by which that promise might be brought to pass or fulfilled. But in chapter 18, God says of Abraham, I have chosen him that he might teach his children the way of the Lord. That I might bring to pass for Abraham all that I have promised him. Now we've got another piece of the picture being added. The way in which God will be our God and the God of our children is through the nurture of our children's faith in a pious home and in a faithful church. Here, Psalm 78 is a locus classicus. We're going to teach our children the way of the Lord, the great deeds that he has done. And what's the result of that going to be? They're not going to be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious people. But they're going to honor the Lord and obey his commandments. And then the sixth assertion is that this nurture is the divine instrumentality either of their awakening to eternal life or more commonly I think they're coming to embrace the faith with ever greater measures of understanding and conviction. Uh, what's clear from the Bible is that the salvation of our children is never suspended upon an event that we are waiting for later in their adolescence or their young adulthood. And yet there have been Christian uh, cultures and Christian communities in the Reformed tradition as well who literally do expect that to be the paradigm of salvation in the life of their children. They expect them to grow up in the church. They expect them in their teenage and early adult years to sow their wild oats and then to have a powerful experience of repentance and conviction and come back to the church. And of course, the sadness is that a great many of them don't uh, come back. Um, anyway, why is it when so many Christians will say that I've been a Christian all my life, so far as I can remember, my situation was as David's. I trusted in the Lord from my mother's breast. Or the author of Psalm 71, from infancy you made me to trust in you. Or that of John the Baptist who is already spiritually alive and responding to the presence 
of the Savior when he is still in his mother's womb and the Lord is still in his mother's womb. Remember, it doesn't say he was jolted by a, uh, an electric current sent from heaven. It said he responded with joy uh, to the presence of the Savior. Who knows what that means, but it is interesting, isn't it, that none of us can remember that from our lives. We have no idea what was going on in our heads when we were, when we were in the womb and when uh, in the earliest years of our lives. All of this together creates an understanding of infant salvation that allows us to deal with the punishing problem of infant death without having to come up with a completely different theory of salvation for those elect individuals than the one we use for everybody else. Because everybody believes, and rightly so, that the children of earnest believers who die in infancy are in fact saved. What would the promise, I will be a God to you and to your children, mean if they could die in infancy and not, and not be saved? But, and of course, through the generations, when our doctrine was being formed, remember, infant death was a commonplace in uh, Christian life as it was in human life. This was a problem they had to wrestle with um, again and again and again. Thomas Boston says in a letter to a friend who was just bereaved of an infant child, I have walked that gloomy road six times, he says. Um, but, he says, I will see them all at the resurrection. How? How do we know that is possible? Where does justification by faith fit into that paradigm that gives us a way of being sure about the salvation of children who die in infancy. Well, infant believers who have the seed of faith already implanted in their hearts uh, can be justified by faith in that scheme. <coughs> All of these teachings, <coughs> excuse me, these six affirmations they lie on the face of the Bible's teaching. You, see, you encounter them again and again and again. Um, and you don't find anything else. You don't find a counter message anywhere else. You don't find the conversionist theology that is now commonplace in Western Christianity. When Polycarp told the judge who sentenced him to death that he had been a Christian for 84 years, he was telling the judge how old he was. He wasn't saying he was 98 and he had his conversion to 14. He was telling the judge how old he was. When Origen, at 16 years of age, tried to go to be with his father in prison and to die with him in the arena, he was prevented from doing that by his mother who hid his clothes. <laughs> It's one thing to be a martyr. It's another thing to be a martyr naked. Um, he was simply being true to his family heritage. He had been raised to love and serve the Lord and to make sacrifices for Christ's sake. In other words, wrapping all of this together, the doctrine of the covenant child 
The doctrine of grace running in the lines of generations isn't one we have to believe, as it were, against the evidence of our eyes. We can confirm its truth simply by looking around this sanctuary every Sunday morning. Every part of this doctrine is provided massive empirical confirmation, not only in the Bible, but uh, in our own observation of life. It is a doctrine with implications, however, and we'll consider some of those in this next lecture, but let me just mention this at this point. It's a doctrine that produces sorrow as well as joy, like all biblical doctrines can. Fear as well as confidence, distress as well as peace, broken hearts as well as abiding gratitude. Every biblical doctrine is dangerous, and this doctrine in particular, since part of this doctrine or the implication of the doctrine is that parents are responsible for the spiritual life of their children. I'll go further and say that in my experience, it's precisely that implication that parents may be accountable for the spiritual loss of their children, the damnation of their children, that to a great degree accounts for the resistance to this teaching that can still be found even in quarters of the Reformed Church. I've witnessed this myself too many times to doubt that the rub is found here. God has made us a promise, but as with all his promises, faith and obedience are required for the promise to be fulfilled. So let me conclude with just a word or two on that. This troubles parents, obviously. How can I possibly raise my children faithfully enough to ensure that they will be saved and not lost? We're not talking about a perfect nurture, but a faithful nurture, the kind of nurture that multitudes of God's, Christ, God's people have provided their children. We who are parents know only too well our abysmal failures toward our children. If their salvation depends on our doing this parenting thing perfectly well, they're doomed, obviously. We know that. That's, that's not difficult for us to understand. And the Bible does, in fact, say, in fact, in some cases, it says explicitly that the loss, spiritual death, of certain children of pious parents was the direct result of the failure of those parents in their parenting. But that same question that troubles us can be asked of everything else in our Christian life. We must believe in order to be saved. Well, how well does any of us really believe? I mean, how much is their faith and how much is their doubt in our hearts? How weak really is our faith? How much of the time does it really look like we are people who believe with conviction every promise that God has made in his word and we are living our lives on the, in the confidence that those promises will be fulfilled? The condition, like all other gospel conditions, is a condition of the gospel of the good news, it will be regarded as sufficient, not because we are perfect parents 
or because we're almost perfect parents, or because we're 51% on the good side of the ledger as parents, but because God is going to treat our little for a lot, like he always does. David says in Psalm 26, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have lived a blameless life. And we blanch at that. We would never say that. We've been taught too well our own sin and God's grace for us ever to say to God, vindicate me for I have lived a blameless life. But that's a mistake on our part. God himself says David lived a blameless life, even in defiance of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and his disintegrating family. The Lord's judgment of a life, of course, is an impenetrable mystery. When the Lord says, to whom much is given, much is required, we learn that his judgment of a believer's behavior in any aspect of his life, parenting as everything else, is adjusted to reflect factors that bear on the measure of his accountability or hers. What parental behavior may constitute faithful nurture in one case, may not in another, we, we get that. It remains entirely beyond our ability to calculate the faithfulness of any parent's nurture in a way that infinite knowledge and infinite goodness and wisdom and justice and love can calculate that, um, that nurture. But God is always gracious and merciful. Other factors likewise have to be weighed. It's not as if we raise our children in isolation. It's not as if parents are the only influences that bear on a child's life. The condition of the church, the faithfulness of its ministry, the toxicity of its culture, so much more are also factors that bear on the outcome of a child's life. What do you do with a child who was sexually abused in church by a member of the church? whose life was devastated by that kind of abuse and now struggles to believe that the gospel is true. Are we going to blame the parent or failure of nurture for that? Who is to say? Who can say? I personally believe that in the case of many lost covenant children, it will be the ministry that will be more accountable before God than it will be the parents. If parents are not told what they are supposed to do and helped to do it, God will not hold them to, uh, accountable in the same way that he will the ministers who are responsible for that work. But I want to finish simply by saying it is a gospel condition. If faith is possible for us, living faith by which we might be saved, by which we might be justified, by which we might live the Christian life, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If faith is possible, nurture, the parental nurture of children is possible too. Okay, we'll stop there. Can you questions? questions? Mm -hmm. If there are any. Yes. Should we stop asking or change the question about conversion, I feel like that question comes up a lot, like you said, in the membership meeting, should we be asking a different question of people to 
Well, the thing that, I, the thing that I'm concerned about is that a covenant child come to think of himself or herself as a second-class Christian citizen because he doesn't have a fascinating story to tell. And the fact of the matter is, not only is salvation the same thing, however it comes uh, to a sinful individual, but in most cases, any thoughtful a Christian is going to realize that the blessing of that form of salvation is immense. All of the things that don't have to be unlearned, all of the terrible experiences that don't have to be remembered, all of the, all of the harm that was done during the years of unbelief uh, that cannot be undone, all of that, as wonderful as conversion can be, magnificent as conversion can be, I guarantee you the Apostle Paul would have rather uh, seen the Lord high and lifted up before he participated in the stoning of Stephen, um, something he carried to his grave as one of the principal regrets of his life. Um, and I do think that's, that should be a concern. We should be teaching our children the immense blessing that God has lavished on them by meeting them at the headwaters of their lives. Some people don't meet him until much later in their lives. And it's wonderful when he, when he does transform a life and brings it out of um, darkness and into light. But for you, my son, my daughter, for you, the Lord met you at the very beginning and he's been with you the whole, the whole way. That should be something that they cherish rather than something that they regret because it's not as interesting to a story to tell <coughs> when people ask how it was they became they became Christians. Yeah. I would I would think it would be very good if our if our young children as they grew up were not proud, but they were immensely grateful for the way they experienced God's grace. Okay. So the context of I guess my question is um, I grew up in Canadian Reformed churches, so how do yes, Skilder, um, how do we as a church place an appropriate emphasis on the beautiful teaching of the covenant and how that relates to our children and yet not lose the necessity of a living and vital faith and a personal faith? As I said, every doctrine in the Bible is dangerous. And everyone has corresponding um, pro uh, sort of historic corresponding problems. Everybody knows what the problem with justification by faith is. Paul has expounded justification by faith through the first five chapters of Romans, and he knows exactly what people are going to do with this doctrine. You're going to say, if what I do has nothing to do with my being put right with God, then I can kick up, I can kick my heels, kick up my heels, and live however I want. And he's so certain of that that he anticipates the objection and deals with it in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Um, the doctrine of election. Historically, its great danger is that it puts believers to sleep. God's going to do it. 
He's going to make sure everything that needs to be done is done, and everybody who's saved, needs to be saved, is saved. And uh, he doesn't really need me. Like the Calvinistic Baptist uh, who told William Carey, look, when the Lord wants to save the heathens, he can do it without you. Um, the doctrine of covenant grace, the perennial danger of covenant grace is nominal Christianity. Absolutely, that is the danger. You're going to, you're going to allow children who have grown up in the faith to, for the gospel to become the wallpaper of their lives. And I would say that is the principal obligation of parents, to make sure that never happens. It's the principal obligation of the, of the church's ministry to make sure that we cannot think that way that what we are really thinking about and what we are really looking for and what we are really grateful for is that the church should be sending a new generation of young people into adulthood and into Christian service who are already thoroughly taught the word of God, already have learned the manners of the kingdom of God, already understand the difficulties, how to deal with disappointment and trouble and so on. They, they come into their adulthood thoroughly prepared to live a useful, committed, valuable Christian life. That's the parent's calling. And to allow, to allow children to fall asleep in the Christian life because that's all they've ever known is a classic failure of parenting and of churchmanship in the, in the church. Just a quick follow-up on that question. It was like teaching spiritual disciplines to your children. For example, like um, we give our children the promises, we catechize them, we read, let's go through Ephesians together and pray at dinner every night. Um, what about teaching them to read the Bible on their own? Teaching them solitude? What about fasting? What about you know spiritual disciplines for, for kids? Um, did you, I'm, I'm going to ask you, Pastor Reburn, did you um, teach your kids at age 10 to read the Bible by themselves? They were uh, relatively early on beginning to venture away on Bible reading plans and so on. Um, let me just, let me give you one example. Our kids were in Christian school. They went to Sunday school. They went to church morning and evening on the Lord's Day. Uh, they were getting a lot of the Bible. We were, we were learning the catechism on the way to school. The rule was until we got to Stephen Street, we were working on catechism, and after that, uh, we weren't. Um, and we, we, that's the way I learned the parts of the shorter catechism I'd never learned before, the, the Ten Commandments and the, uh, and the Lord's Prayer. So we decided that... Um, they didn't need just to read the Bible at family devotions. So we began reading books. Um, Henry Corey's magnificent novel about the early life of Augustine. Um, the um, shorter version, it's actually the same text, but it's a somewhat shortened version of the autobiography of John Payton, the missionary to the South Sea Islands. Um, uh, an account of the, uh, for children of the, um, 
the life and death of uh, Richard Cameron, one of the Covenanter martyrs and so on. One of the precious moments of my life in my recollection is at our cabin in Colorado. I'm finishing the account of Richard Cameron and his death, and I look up, and all the kids are crying around the, t around the table. It also, by the way, made it very easy to have family devotions because they wanted the next chapter, and uh, they were interested in the story, and they wanted to see what, com what came next. So we didn't have to persuade them to stay. They were persuading us um, to uh, read and to begin again. But <clears throat> part of that is you want, you want to be injecting inspiration into their experience of the Christian life and their understanding of it. You want them to have heroes. You want them to read about uh, Christians who um, did wonderful things and, uh, and so on. So I would say that's an extraordinarily um, valuable question, and it's the issue that has to be faced with respect to this doctrine. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, we're taking more. I have one question. Um, what, how do you, you know, the catechism when it talks about you know, the efficacy of the sacraments not tied to the moment, how does that play? Do you, I mean, does that come out pastorally for you and how, you know, your understanding the sacrament, how the Spirit's working in, in children's lives, and, um, and just talking to parents, I guess, you know. I think, it's an, I think it's theologically an insoluble problem. And there has never been a satisfactory resolution, I think, in Christian theology, just, just as well as, as in Reformed theology. Do we baptize our children because they're Christians? Or do they become Christians by their baptism? In the Westminster documents, you get both. And uh, I don't really know how you can split, how, how you can successfully split the difference. In the, in the case of the Lord's Supper, when they're old enough in our, in our communion to be participating in that, I think their situation is exactly the same as, as ours. I mean, we'd all love it, it to be the case that every time we came to the Lord's table, we had a powerful experience of Christ's nearness and love. But we know that isn't the case. We, as preachers, we would like every sermon to produce life-changing effects in the hearts of the people who are hearing us, but we know that isn't the case. In fact, preaching in a congregation is very much like raising a child. It's piece by piece. It's the same thing over and over again. It's, it's the cultivation of a Christian mind and a Christian heart. And uh, so the sacraments, uh, it seems to me. I think only eternity will tell how much, how much the Lord, if, if somehow or another we could take the Lord's Supper out of the picture and see what our Christian life would have been without it, I suspect the difference would be significant, but, um, but there's no way for us to see that. But that's one of the reasons why I want my, wanted my children to be taking the Lord's Supper as early as possible, because that's, we call that a means of grace, and what we're wanting for our kids is grace. And if that's giving them grace, then why, why in the world would they not be receiving it in that, in that form? 
Um, and I think, I think that attitude is what we want as parents as well. We want to be pouring, you know, you only have a few years <laughs> to do this. The day is going to come when you realize your work is, is finished. There's, you might want to do some more work, but um, they don't really think of themselves as your, as your children under your authority any longer. And uh, you, we have so little time to do this work and so much to do in that time. It's the great challenge of life. How do you square this doctrine with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in the case that a child does abandon the faith, say, at age 19? I would say the, the thing I like about thinking about covenant succession or grace in the lines of generations in this way is that it is exactly the same theological understanding that applies across the board. Um, a child comes into the Christian faith and into the Christian church, is baptized as an infant, is going to Sunday school, he's learning to sing the songs, he's doing that. He may even have some wonderful experiences that encourage our hearts to believe that he is really grasping the faith for himself and wanting to live it. And maybe he does for some years. And then he, he gives it up, goes back to the world. That's a terrible situation, but it's not different from the situation of a guy who is converted through a campus ministry at 22 years of age, becomes a soul winner, lives for 5, 10, 15 years as a Christian, and then gives it up. We know this happens. It's a tremendous mystery. We can't explain it. Uh, but we know it does happen. The Bible tells us that it happens. And, um, but it's, I mean, theologically speaking, it's exactly the same situation in the one case as in, as in the other. So then in this case, you would affirm both the child was born a Christian and abandoned. No, I would say the child was a Christian. Remember, the word Christian ordinarily in our circles is virtually a synonym for the elect. When we say the word Christian, we think we're describing somebody who was chosen by God before the foundation of the world, redeemed by Christ on the cross, has been given the new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit and is living the Christian life. So for us, for a Christian to desert the faith, a Christian to leave the church is a, is a theological problem because we're using the word in a fashion that doesn't permit apostasy. But the word Christian is not used that way in the Bible and it really shouldn't be used that way for us either because we can't look upon the heart. We can't tell who's been born again. The, Church history is littered with the experience of apostasy by people that themselves would never have expected this to happen in their lives, and those who knew them and loved them would never have thought, uh, thought it of them either. Um, so what, we're, what we mean by Christian in this sense is what we, can, what we can mean by it. Somebody we have every reason to believe belongs in the body of Christ, in the church of God.